0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz headquarters at 350 Franco Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the perils of climate gentrification, steel case in the circular economy, why now is the best time to tell your sustainability story. And behind the scenes of Disney's sustainable packaging. We're thinking out of the box this week on 350. It's February 16th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
1: Hello, Joel. How are you today?
0: I'm good. It's um, the Friday before a three-day weekend. I know we both have plans. What about yours?
1: Well, I'm hoping for some snow in New Hampshire where I will be snowmobiling. It has a sort of a tradition. I have some friends that, that live up near Lake Winnipesaukee, and we it's actually kind of crazy. You actually have to s- snowmobile across the lake to get uh, to the trail. So it's it's fun, um, and we've been doing it for, I don't know, I guess this is the eighth year we're going up there, and last year was a little bizarre. We had 55-degree um, uh, f- weather. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it was a little mushy and, and slushy, but um, anyway, that's where I'm heading. What about you? I, I think you're heading in a different direction entirely.
0: I am. Um, first of all, I can't think of Lake Winnipesaukee without thinking of that fabulous movie, Bill Murray's movie, Uh, What About Bob? So I'll be thinking about Bob this weekend while you're down there. But I will be uh, in Mexico, Baja, California, uh, Todos Santos, which is uh, near Cabo San Lucas, just to get some sun and get away. And, um, oh, it's my birthday this weekend.
2: (gasps) Will you be eating birthday cake?
0: Well, we'll see about that, TBD. Um, But Todos Santos, little-known fact, is – the uh, location of the original Hotel California uh, of the song fame. And so, whatever.
1: (laughs) I did not know that. I thought that the Hotel California would be in California.
0: Well, it's in, sort of, it's in Baja, California. Ah,
1: okay. Okay. There you go. Right, right.
0: Well, um, so that sounds like fun for this weekend, but, you know, let's as we do go backwards to talk about the Week in Review. So part of the Week in Review for us was just still reflecting off the glow of GreenBiz 18. Last week, we're gonna run some clips. Um, again, uh, two of the one great idea. Uh, these are the little uh, TED Talk-like stand-ups that we run at our uh, GreenBiz event and um you'll hear about you'll hear from those uh, coming up in a few minutes one they're both two of the great ones from uh, Suzanne Shelton our good friend and one of the premier communications experts uh, on sustainability and Candela Montera who's a uh, what do you have her title Heather
1: Director of Corporate Citizenship
0: at Disney and she gave this fabulous talk you know, looking at uh, how Disney re- rethought its packaging and 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 kind of made it available to everyone else, to one who's thinking of rethinking their packaging too. So we'll get to that. But busy week, you know, there was the budget uh, and a really interesting uh, kind of end run around a carbon tax. I mean, who'd have thunk that amidst all the uh, other things that came out of the budget that weren't quite so uh, environmentally friendly. But uh, what'd you think of that?
1: So, yeah, I mean, we, this is the proposal that we're chatting about right now. So you never know exactly what you should worry about or how much you should worry about um, because, you know, it's not exactly final yet. But um, it was a surprise to see that amid these proposals to cut the energy efficiency and, of course, to, you know, slash a lot of, of the um, environmental programs that, that we saw come into play over the last four to eight years, that there is a production tax credit for carbon capture projects. Um, and you know, you could you could look at this two ways. One is it 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 does recognize that there should be more innovation in that space. The other th- skeptical way you could look at it, or the cynical way you could look at it, is oh it's it's yet a sort of another tacit support for the fossil fuels industry like okay guys yeah it's okay keep doing this ah maybe we'll help you fund the the technology to capture it um you know we'll give you some money here so there's two views emerging on that but it was a surprise and and um you know i feel like we need innovation in both the clean side and in the clean up side so i was I, took, I I was happy to see it we'll see what happens so yeah this
0: was a proposal in the budget to give a production tax credit for carbon capture use and storage technologies. It's a $50 per ton of CO2, uh, which is about three times the price of California's current cap-and-trade program uh, for geologic storage, and, and $35 a ton for what's called beneficial reuse. So it's really actually valuing what is a ton of carbon worth, once we've captured it. Noah Deitch, who's the uh, executive director of the Center for Carbon Removal, sent out an email uh, to a group of, I don't know who, but I, he, he did a little think why this is important. He said, this is potentially catalytic legislation for the carbon capture technology industry, and, and these pro- the kinds of projects this is benefiting will help pave the way for negative carbon projects in the future while decreasing emissions at industrial sources, and the price is likely, he said, to increase demand for carbon tech startups working to transform CO2 into value, something we at GreenBiz have been writing about in the State of Green Business, I think 2017, about the new market for carbon-based products and services. So anyway, this is, as you pointed out, still preliminary. But it's kind of interesting, something to watch in the fact that this, uh, this you know, came up again through a, through a group of entrepreneurs who were able to get to the right members of Congress. I don't know the machinations, but we were able to get this into the bill. So um, we'll see where this goes. It's, you know, in a climate change metaphor. It's got a snowball's chance probably of making it all the way through the process, but it's a little glimmer of, of not horrible environmental news during budget week. So one of the other stories that uh, I, I want to uh, highlight this week is one on climate gentrification. Interesting um, piece by Michael Caballero, who is uh, works at at FedEx, but is part of a group that has been doing training for uh, people in uh, in communities, low income communities, to help them become. Certified in eco districts and lead associates and lead neighborhood development uh, certifications so that they can be working on uh, community kinds of projects. So, the reality is, is that getting these kinds of certifications is very not just time consuming but expensive uh, from the US Green Building Council. And so, this has been taking place down in the USGBC in Miami, that chapter down there. Um, helping a, uh, a couple of cohorts of uh, called the Smart Miami cohort, training minorities and women-owned businesses in sustainable and resilient building accreditation, uh, and allowing basically the people who live in low-income and disadvantaged communities to have a say in in the neighborhood development or redevelopment. So uh, I've gotten to know uh, uh, Michael and uh, his colleagues uh, Carla Mays and uh, David Capelli. And it's really interesting stuff. so I encourage you to take a look at this and you know the idea of climate gentrification is that as as climate starts to either devastate uh, communities through flooding or hurricanes or tornadoes, whatever, or droughts and, and all of the things that are uh, you know likely to befall us. and communities start rebuilding, what are they rebuilding? Are they rebuilding in a way that, the people who used to live there can still afford, or are they going to suddenly be priced out of the market? That's one piece of it. And then what kinds of communities will they you know, have the amenities that may be you know, now missing? Like, will they recover from food deserts, for for example? So lots of really interesting things on the social side of sustainability that, that we're, uh, haven't been as much part of the conversation. And we're looking to bring that more to our Green Biz and Verge events in the future.
1: Yeah, and and you mentioned the social, but I love that this is positioned as a, a small business certification, right? So they're 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 basically helping these people start their own businesses, which, as we know, small businesses are the heartbeat of the economy. Um, and it's not a philanthropy, or, or, or you know, it's it is a way of allowing the people that live there to um, become better citizens of the community through economic initiatives, and um, you know particular relevance right now after Irma, right? So uh, the the program was in place before then, but it's accelerating as a result of the need to rebuild sustainably and resiliently.
0: So another piece I want to give a shout out to uh, a recently uh, added contributor to Green Biz, Marilyn Waite. Um, Marilyn's really interesting woman uh, who has quite a a I think, impressive uh, CV. Uh, currently, she work, she's working at the um, Hewlett Foundation, just recently started there as a program officer in the environment. But she's uh, been a venture capitalist. Uh, she led the clean energy practice at Village Capital. She's been a senior research fellow at Project Drawdown. She did R&D at Arriva in France, um, which is a big nuclear power company. Uh, she wrote a book called Sustainability at Work. Anyway, oh, and by the way, she has a master's degree with distinction in engineering for sustainable development from the University of Cambridge. Oh, my God, that just makes me feel like such a piker here. But uh, Marilyn's been writing a a great series called The Innovators, um, and the the second uh, installment of which uh, ran this week, um, Profiles of of Women-Led Ventures in the Green Economy. She's going to be doing one a month uh, during 2018 and maybe beyond that. Uh, and this, uh, this week, uh, this month, she profiled um, Salisa Berrien, who Marilyn says she met at an engineering conference and, and got to learn about and, and is, uh, has a company called Koi Energy which creates a climate-friendly world by enabling low-cost, clean, and flexible energy resources with a a, a platform for utilities and business customers. She's working with Tampa Electric. So it's an interesting company, um, and uh, I think this series is going to be uh, real value to the the Green Biz community and highlighting some of the lesser-known, as as I said, women-led startups.
1: And I would love to just plug the first installment, which was – Lisa Curtis and she's the founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley Foods. And guess what? Cooley Cooley was one of our, and Lisa was one of our 30 under 30 emerging leaders uh, class of 2016. So it's it's wonderful to see that that it's all of these sort of young innovative uh, females are coming into to play and I'm I'm excited about this series as well. It's um wonderful to have that perspective.
3: Yeah.
0: And then there's Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't write about him all that much because we don't, haven't covered Tesla that much. But um, our good friend Alan Atkinson, who is uh, president and CEO of, of the Atkinson Group in Stockholm, uh, wrote a piece called Raining on the Starman's Parade. Starman, of course, being uh, one of Elon's uh, monikers, nicknames, whatever. Why Elon Musk's space stunt was a bad idea. Now, this is almost sacrilege to take on you know someone as clever as Elon and, and his you know he just he launched this uh, Falcon Heavy rocket, one of the I think heaviest uh, rockets ever to be shot into space, and is obviously from his company SpaceX, the uh, privately uh, held company that that he created. And as part of that, he put a Tesla inside that a cherry red Tesla, uh, I think Roadster in, the, in the, the rocket and took it up there. To, it's going to be in space for ever, I guess. Uh, and everybody loved that. Um, everybody thought it was a great thing, but not Alan. Alan Eckerson said, you know, this he, in fact, acknowledged, he said, I realize this column's going to cost me my invitation to Elon Musk's Christmas party and whatever else. But, he, you know, this whole idea of uh, sort of commercializing space, uh, it, 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 right now, he says it calls it the ultimate commons—an area that nobody owns, which means it belongs to everyone. And 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 uh, you know he uh, likens it to Antarctica, which at least until the year 2041 is is uh, isn't going to be owned by anyone. And that's a, a, another story altogether about what happens in what uh, 23 years from now. But I think he he rails against the private privatization of space and uh, not the privatization of sending rockets up, but I guess to the commercialization that uh, he sees Elon approaching.
1: Yeah, there were two things that he specifically worried about, <laughs> if you will. One was the, the, the resources out there, right? So the idea that companies could just exploit as they have on Earth the minerals and, and and so forth in asteroids and in other places, I guess, you know, there, no one really, uh, at the corporate level, no, no one really owns anything, right? And then the other sort of scary scenario, which I probably, probably improbable, although maybe not, was the idea that someone could hang these major, you know, visual corporate logos off of satellites and so forth and kind of pollute our Outer space, if you will, with with the sort of same messages and branding that we see here on planet Earth. So, you know, I, I just want to make one comment about the fact. You know, yes, we we don't cover Tesla um, as much as we have other companies in the electric vehicle space for a couple of different reasons. One is um, it, it's very questionable to me how sustainable um, Tesla is as a company. So, I, I that that's the thing that fascinates me more than anything else is. Are they doing the right things with manufacturing and so forth? We, all of the innovations that they have—the energy storage, the batteries, right—and and the cars are absolutely amazing and, and can help others. But I always, I wonder. There's such little um, transparency on the operational side with Tesla. That is the story I really want to see. Um, and uh, you know, as we, as we play out with with the other automotive companies and see what they're doing, it's, it should be interesting to see how Tesla stands up. So. Um, don't, I haven't been covering them that much, but I expect that to change. So,
0: yeah, that could change very soon. Uh, I think it's also really interesting, uh, to head over to that story and read the comments because it, uh, attracted a pretty, some, a lot of comments so far. And, uh, a lot of people take issue with, with, with what Alan talked about and some people said right on. And, um, you know, good old Elon, he's, he's nothing if not, uh, worth discussing and, Um, celebrating or berating, but um, he's always a good subject. So yeah, we'll be looking more in that direction.
1: So as Joel mentioned at the beginning of this week in review, we have two different segments from the the Green Biz 18 conference um, last week in Phoenix. The first of which is a set of lessons from, from Disney. Candela Montero, as we mentioned, the Director of Corporate Citizenship, for Disney Consumer Products and the Interactive Division has spent the last eight, yes, eight years working on this sustainable uh, smart packaging initiative. And um, it was fascinating to hear about that journey and about why this isn't just about a better package, but it's, it's about an experience, a consumer experience. She, she showed the Moana package, which was so fun. It, when you open it up, it, it comes apart and becomes a boat. <laughs> for the doll. So it just was a just complete rethinking of what a package can be. And so I just uh, love to share a clip here of um, part of her One Great Idea presentation, why they're going to open source this, this concept and, and give, this, give up the goods, if you will. Uh, here is Candela. But I want to spend less time talking to you about the Smart Packaging Initiative and what that is, and
4: spend more time today talking to you about all the lessons that we learned over the last eight years. And really, those lessons fall in two key categories. The first one are ones around building the program itself, and the others are around bringing everybody along. And we'll start with building the program. So as many of you know, when you're trying to create something different in the sustainability space, it can not only be a difficult process, but often the data that you need in order to be able to do that does not yet exist. Our first lesson came really early in in the smart packaging journey when we had to physically reverse engineer over 500 packages in order to be able to catalog what the industry norms were of the environmental performance of toy packaging that was in the market at that time. Now if you think it's frustrating to open one toy package, imagine the cuts and calluses that we had with three people having to do this for 500. It was pretty bad. But what we learned was that although this task was really intimidating, we couldn't shy away from doing the work that needed to be done no matter how 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 much it was grunt work in order to really create something that would make a change and that would create a difference as you probably saw from the timeline we also have had to shift and pivot many many times based on the feedback that we were getting from those using this technology and testing it so another big lesson that we learned was that we really could not have a narrow vision of what we wanted the smart packaging to be and I assure you, what we initially thought the Smart Packaging Initiative was going to be and what it is today is wildly different, but it's better. So we learned that we couldn't dig our feet in the ground when something wasn't going our way or when something wasn't exactly the way that we envisioned, and instead that we had to learn to react quickly, to let go, and to pivot and be flexible when we needed to be in order to create something that would really work. But It doesn't really matter how great of a tool you build and how many times you change it if nobody uses it. So it probably comes to no surprise to most of you in this room that the biggest challenge we've had over the last eight years has been to motivate our internal and external stakeholders to change the way that they approach the product development process every day and come along this journey with us. The other thing that we learned was that while there's so much work behind something like the Smart Packaging Initiative and complexities like um, algorithms and life cycle assessments and weighting structures, that we did not have to bog down our audience with all of these details in order to build credibility for the program. Instead, what was more effective was that we had a simple message and a clear and easy roadmap that they could follow in order to get involved if we really wanted them to be part of this journey for the long haul. One of the other things that Disney has a habit of doing as a big, large company is that we are reticent to share things we're working on or share small examples of progress if something isn't fully baked and done for fear that it won't be received well. It's a pretty conservative approach. And one that we learned very early on in the Smart Packaging Initiative, we would not have the luxury of employing. Because if we didn't include our internal and stakeholders, internal and external stakeholders from the very beginning of the process and at every stage of the initiative, that we were just gonna build something that didn't work and that all of those efforts would be for nothing. So while it can be very uncomfortable to bring folks into the fold when you're not ready if you don't go in we saw with um, ugly draft slides and unfinished ideas and being candid about the whole host of challenges that you're facing you're not going to be able to ask for feedback to ask for suggestions on solutions or for help otherwise something that was very very important for us throughout this process And finally, our last lesson, and the one that we've been really focused on this year, is around the evolution of ownership. Sometimes when you spend such a long time building something, let's be honest, you really want to own it because you want the world to give you credit for having created it. It's true, it's in all of us, I know. That said, what we found is that, you know, the environmental issues that we're facing today are much, much bigger than any one company can own and no amount of reputational benefit that any of us might be experiencing by with any of the solutions that we're creating are worth compromising that. The Smart Packaging Initiative has been successful for us because we did not hold it tightly to our chest and instead from the very beginning, we opened up our arms to collaborating with really anybody that was willing to collaborate with us. So for that reason, In two months' time, although the smart packaging initiative to date has only been used by Disney employees and Disney licensees, we will be releasing the tool, the methodology behind it, and hopefully, if legal allows, uh, I think so, the source code so that anybody can use it, can more importantly improve upon it, and benefit from it, because... No matter who we are, it doesn't matter who's creating what solution. We've all created these issues that we're facing together, and we all need to own them and fix them together.
1: The other presentation that really resonated for me um, was, was, uh, as you mentioned, Suzanne Shelton. And not only just because she's an amazing, uh, energetic speaker, but because um, she had this, and, and Joel, you know this better than I. We've been saying for so, for many years um, why why is now the time to reach the eco consumer? Why is now the time to tell your story? You should tell your story. You should tell your story. We often advise and encourage the corporate world to be do a better job at, at saying what's going on, why why it's good, why they're a leader in uh, why the ones that are leaders in in corporate sustainability should be should be using that as a as a as a value point, right? With with the world and. This was a great presentation from Suzanne on why now, now as opposed to 20 years ago, um, culturally, culturally speaking, and, and sort of, you know, why now is the right time to tell your sustainability message and why it should be just part of the core messaging of a company. So here is a chunk of Suzanne's uh, one great idea. We are in the middle of that same
2: kind of shift on sustainability, where it is now socially desirable to be seen as green, and therefore socially undesirable to be seen as not. Okay, now as I say that, uh, how many of you in the room have been playing in the sustainability space for over 10 years? Yes, me too. So you probably in your mind just went, yeah, right, Suzanne. We've heard this before. There's a green consumer out there, and we should tell our story to her. Uh, Joel, in fact, wrote a book on this way back in the 1900s. Um, (laughs) You know, yes, fair enough. We have been here before, and folks like me have said, oh my gosh, tell your story, you'll build your brand, you'll sell more products. So I understand why you would be skeptical except this time is different. So I'm gonna dig into why it's different, but, but first let me give a, a bit of a, um, not, not really a caveat, but couch this. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shelton Group, we are a strategic marketing agency uh, exclusively focused on sustainability. We work with large organizations to realize a market advantage by doing the right thing for the planet. And so to keep ourselves fresh and on the cutting edge, we poll Americans several times a year, decision makers, business decision makers, and consumers, to get inside their heads. You know, what are they thinking about all this, and how is that laddering up to their brand preferences and their product purchases? So we've got about 11 years of trending data now, and we see some really interesting changes uh, happening in, a, in our data sets over the last three years. So that's why we think now is different, and now is really the right time to tell your sustainability story. I want to dig into two of the trends that we're seeing, and hopefully you'll, you'll buy into our concept. Uh, th- this is one of our questions that's, that's frankly kind of a trick question. Can you think of a time when you've purchased or not purchased a product based on the environmental record of the manufacturer? And as you might imagine, a fair number of us is you know, like, yeah, I am that person, right? Because we want to be that person. So the trick part of the question is we say, oh, awesome. Name the brand. And then, you know, whoa, whoa, that's kind of where it falls apart for, for most of us. Uh, for six years, about 6% of us is how that math worked out. About 6% of us could actually name a brand or company uh, uh, that we've purchased from as a result of their environmental record. So for six years, pretty steady numbers. And then in 2015, we saw it jump almost incredulously. And then in 2016, it jumped again. Now in 2017, it settled back down a little bit. So where we are today is that 16% of us can cough up a real world example of of when we put our, our wallets where our values are. Now, because we've sort of seen the numbers do this, you know, they, they were steady, and then they jumped, and then they jumped, and then they came back down, we actually predict that when we look back on this five or ten years from now, we're going to see it continue to do that up and down thing, but in an upward right direction. We, we think this is going to trend in a very positive way, and we're going to see that 16% steadily become 26 steadily become 36 and on and on and on. And I also realize, um, I I own a marketing firm totally focused in the sustainability space, right? I have an agenda. I wanna see the numbers move in that direction. But it's not just because it's how we want to interpret the data. Many of our data points are spelling out the same story, like this one. Do you, Mr. or Mrs. American consumer, want to be seen as someone who buys eco-friendly products? Right, and you see how this has gone a little bit of up and down, but it is trending in an upward right direction, and we've settled in at 40% as of last year. 40% 40% of us that want to be seen as someone who buys eco-friendly products. Y'all, this is huge, because it's not a niche green consumer anymore. This is, this is the mainstream middle, and this isn't about, you know, do I like companies because they're green or do I like green products? This is about personal identity. I mean, there's nothing more core, more intimate to who we are than how do we want to be seen in the world. So 40% of us want to be seen as someone who buys eco-friendly products, and quite frankly, we want to be seen as the opposite of these people when it comes to the environment. So what are we doing about it? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, because there are a lot of ways we could behave, there are a lot of things we could do that would cause us to be seen as someone who is green. And what we're choosing to do is we are crowdsourcing corporate America. That's how we're doing it. This This is the list of brands we get when we ask, who are you buying from because of their environmental record? So not really many surprises here. But again, what's surprising is the story in the numbers um, is I'm not changing my personal behaviors, I'm changing my buying behaviors. I am choosing to take action on the environment by aligning my personal brand with brands out there that I think are doing the right thing for the planet. That's astounding, really, really interesting, and also pretty logical, right? It's a lot easier to change a buying behavior than it is to change a personal behavior. Right? If you've ever been on a, a, on a health kick, man, it's hard to stick with the exercise program. Pretty easy to buy a kind bar instead of a Snickers bar. Right? I mean, that's a much easier choice to make to stay healthy. So that's what we're doing, but it all begs the question, why? Why do we want to be seen as someone who's ego-friendly? Why are we aligning our personal brands with the brands out in the world? Why are we choosing to buy from them? Well, it boils down to one very key insight that I hope you take away with you today, and that is quite simply, we are terrified. Only 13% of Americans today actively disbelieve that climate change is real and caused by man. 86% of millennial parents are anxious about the impacts of climate change in their children's lifetime. We are worried, we are scared, we feel alone, and we feel helpless. How is changing my personal behavior, how is turning the water off when I brush my teeth gonna save us from this kind of stuff? Right, it's just, it's not. But the great news is we are also in the middle of another fantastic moment a moment where we realize we are, in fact, not alone. We, we have a network, we have a crowd, we have a group, we have a chorus of voices that when we come together, we can speak truth to power and we can bring down the bad and elevate the good. And that is the new rules of the game, you guys. That's how we're playing corporate America. We are coming together and sending a clear message to corporate America through our purchases that we will buy from you if you're a good guy and we won't buy from you if you're a bad guy.
0: And it should be noted that um all of these videos over t- the next coming weeks and months we'll be posting them on Greenbiz and, and also uh, turning some of them into our center stage uh, podcast where uh, you can listen to the audio portions uh, as, just as, as you just did. So lots more to come. We'll be uh, posting those on a regular basis and um, look forward to sharing them with the Greenbiz community. So one final segment, we're going to play from GreenBiz 18 last week. We talked a lot at GreenBiz about circular economy, as we do at all of our events. Um, and one of the companies that I love to point to as an icon in this is Steelcase, the office furniture company um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They have been looking at really how do they revolutionize their business, their their products and services around a circular model. Um, at the conference, uh, Anya Hollamayer uh, talked with. Uh, two executives from Steelcase and uh, here's
3: that clip.
5: Angelina Hekian, I lead sustainability for Steelcase.
3: And I'm Bruce Smith and I'm a director of design in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
6: Thank you so much for joining us at Greenbiz and for agreeing to be on the podcast. How does an organization like Steelcase build momentum for circular economy design throughout the organization?
3: I think that's a really great question, challenging for all of us. I think for us, perhaps the most important thing is to have a strong start, which means that we need to have support from the highest level in the organization. Because circularity is such a systemic and grand problem, um, you have to have that support in order to make the changes necessary to accomplish your goals.
6: And who is engaged in the process? different,
3: inter, between departments or, you know. That's a, also a great question. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's key areas. Uh, clearly operations would be a big one, which includes supply chain. Um, there are so many financial questions. You have to include finance. Um, strategy, another big one, because of the radical changes that take place within an organization. Um, and then you get into uh, development teams, uh, marketing, perhaps. Uh, it's broad. And for us at Steelcase, uh, we've connected on all of those categories, if not more.
6: Can you discuss your win as a multinational finalist in the World Economic Forum's 2018 Circulars Award and what that means for circular economy?
5: Well, first of all, it, it was just a tremendous honor. Um, it was a tremendous honor for us to get to that stage and to be among so many great companies. Um, so we we felt just uh, just being part of that collection was uh, was was just a tremendous um, thrill for us. And um, I think what it what the what the circulars though really mean is that we're finally recognizing the energy that a lot of businesses uh, are putting in a lot of companies are putting into circular economy strategies and uh, and that's business model strategies and product strategies and how uh, holistic many of these are and i think the circulars gives an opportunity um, not not only maybe to recognize some of that work uh, that goes on in companies but even more so maybe just elevates uh, the, the effort and, and helps people be more aware of, of the circular movement and um, the circular economy movement and work that's going on.
6: And what are some of the programs or products that brought you to the circulars?
5: Well, we have a really strong history um, of, of uh, designing uh, for circularity and products. And that includes the material choices that we make, and how we think about design, uh, the choices that we make throughout the design process, and then, of course, the the design strategies that we employ for end of life as part of that. So I think that's part is very natural for us, and we've been doing a lot of that work. It doesn't mean it's hard or that we, we are not constantly getting better. But I would also say that um, you know, it really is a new day in terms of the, the things that we need to do going forward. So now it includes business models and all kinds of other things and, um, and, and strategy that goes very deep into the company. And how do you define
6: design within the circular economy?
3: If I step back and I think about what circularity is, um, it's, it's a big D design problem. It's a complex, a systemic design problem. Because of that, uh, we have to uh, define design equally as broadly. And, And so what that really means is that we have to be inclusive of a lot of different disciplines. We have to turn finance people into designers. We have to turn supply chain people into designers. And when I'm talking about design here, I'm talking less about the classic design process. I'm talking about design thinking and it's when we all choose to acknowledge that we're designers and we own that problem and that we own the, the challenge to leverage design thinking, that's when we'll be successful. If, if you're going through a reasonably rigorous design process, you're going to start to gain the insights into the real problem and, and realize that there's tremendous opportunity there. So, so you'll get optimistic. Um, which is catchy, well, I'll get optimistic with you. Um, When you get to that point, uh, you're gonna open your mind and think a little bit to the possibilities in front of you Um, and and perhaps maybe question some of the beliefs that you might have had previously. Um, That's that's when you start to see um, open opportunities, um, possibilities to maybe change your thinking, maybe even change your approach, maybe even bring other people along with you.
5: And I think in the early stages of thinking about circular economy, I think there was a belief among many that you start with the product and you really are inspired by the product and then you grow into the business model. And I think what we're understanding is that that can be true, but maybe more. We start with what the customer really needs. What are their pain points? What kind of business model could address those pain points for them, and then what kind of hard assets, products, and other things, in addition to services that combined, would really get at something novel, something completely new, something that we've never done before. And I think that maybe is where the the inspiration for design is that mm. it's about not maybe even just the product service system, but it really is born out of customer need and and customer desires that they may not even be able to articulate, but it really gets to the core of their business uh, issues.
6: And going forward, what do you see as the big circular economy trends um, for companies in
5: 2018? Well, I think a lot of companies are still very much focused on product circularity, and that's really important because it's the engine um, of circular economy. But I think more and more I see, uh, and I'm hearing stories, uh, certainly here this week, that are, that are um, more frequently about business models and how those business models are connected to growth and um, to stakeholders' uh, needs. So, I would say that uh, probably, I, at least that's what I would see, is that the, the understanding is deepening around what, what circular economy is, what it means to business, and how it connects to outcomes for all of us uh, you know, across, the, across the globe, uh, just in you know, right down to the local community issues uh, of water and, and fundamentals, but, uh, but also the economy as a whole. So I would say that people are connecting the dots would be would be my takeaway.
0: One of the people who came through the Greenbiz office recently is my old friend John Picard. John, you may not know about but he has been at the beginnings of so many things of green building and, and interface and Ray Anderson, all the way through some of the really cool cutting edge clean tech companies. And John, it's, it, it, it's great to have you here. And I always learn so much. But the thing that you do for me, one of many things that you do for me in our conversations is you help me think bigger and bolder. And I think that's a theme and, and that you're seeing out there in your travels, yeah. that
7: companies just aren't too big and bold. Yeah, well it's not just companies, it's, it's each one of us, right? So when you've been in this space for a long time and you've been running it as many solutions as I've run at and you've seen so many amazing people become the heroes in the space and the needle's just not moving enough to keep up with the complexity and how big the problem is, I, I just, you step back and you just say, we're just making these incremental things happen and now's the time to go bold and and not look back just that that may be the move that we need to take more than anything it's just broad thinking aggressive you know change bet on trends and and and, and bet on disruptors that so what if we're wrong but what if we're right what if what if i hit one thing big is is all it takes and and i think that we plan too much we we run the numbers too much we treat everything like a business we treat everything like it has to have an outcome and the outcome that we're searching for isn't in any of that i mean it's it, it you know we we've got to have a set of people who you know think globally act locally but do it in an explosive way like the broadest thinking the Big ideas, really, really big ideas. And I think the risk of that is people are going to laugh you out of the room. You're not going to fit into uh, the business culture. You're not going to get that consulting gig. You're, you're not going to probably get that retainer to design that stadium. But you may have a client that says, hey, I'm uh, I'm going to do an airport. Right. And I want to create an airport that changes everything. Right.
0: But for a lot of people who are listening to this, their client is someone in yeah. their their boss in their company, or the department, or the CEO, or the board of their company. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people who are saying, yeah, of course, I don't disagree with anything you say, but actually executing on that, actually getting past incrementalism or getting the permission mm-hmm. to think
7: big is is kind of hard. Yeah, you have to so one i'm not trying to tell you to take yourself off your focus for your day job and you know i don't want you to get fired because of something i'm saying what i do think is that it's possible to see around the corner if you train yourself i do think you can think compress really hard on the problems that you have at work and not just try to solve for that first phase not just try to but take a look at the bigger opportunity that you could solve for. That's really all I'm saying, is if your company says, hey, let's recycle. Well, why not? Let's not just recycle, but let's, you know, regenerate. Let, let, what are the next things that we can do and not just stop because we set our own limit?
0: What's a breakthrough you saw in a company, uh, maybe a, a bigger company, let's think about for now, that that just,
7: you know, said, yeah, that, that's the way we need to be doing more of that. Right yeah no so i've come up with this concept of just being in the tailwind right i keep seeing these great companies aiming at trying to unlock you know autonomy right in the vehicles and transportation and mobility or medicine there's just all these sectors education energy and i keep discovering their breakthroughs could work in other areas so you know i'm building trained i'm all about the built world. I'm, I really look at old buildings as big opportunities, not to just make them smarter or less dumb, but what could we do to completely shift the opportunity of a building? And in watching what's happened with the whole autonomous vehicle, mobility, transportation space, I think I'm in the best tailwind I've ever been in because look at how much change they've created. Look how much volume of risk reduced. Look at look at the efficiencies that are come out. And when you look at what they did, they, they just grabbed a graphical processor unit from the game industry that just got better and better. And, and, the, and, and, and that, coupled with AI, brought us what we have today which some people are like oh my god what's going to happen with autonomous vehicles well everything and what's going to happen beyond that everything and and can you can you look at these kind of breakthroughs and apply them to other things and i think what happened was is they these these two core technologies these powerful processors coupled with this extraordinary software that learns writes itself and Starts to create this sort of intelligent surround vision, and so vehicles are going to become extremely efficient and just dynamic, like nobody imagined. And I'm thinking that's what buildings need to be. Instead of us jamming shit into buildings all the time and forcing things on and layering it, injecting, applying, driving, managing, uh, you know, forcing sustainability, forcing efficiencies. Why don't we? Why don't we put? The, why don't we just? Find the core of the building, put that processor in that, and then attach the AI engine and see if we can't not just build an autonomous building, but just reverse so that the building can look out with its own vision of security. How do I protect the people that are coming in? How do I see these people? How do I see the energy, the water flows, all the things, the weather, all of those layers, those tiny layers? that happen every second of every day and how can those ai engines start to map together globally and try to sow an operating system or visualization of that and and if buildings were learning like that what's the value of that portfolio right and 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 it's yet to be discovered it's just a concept but th- that's what's that's what's really fun about living here in the valley and just being around researchers and being around people who are trying to, you know, change transportation, tra- change how we grow food, change how we look at water. Um, don't don't feel like you have to be as good or try to copy or, or wow, look at what they've done. I'll never be able to do that. L- look at all the things that are the halo events that are around that. And that in, within that halo, other people talking, other people who were part of that, talk to these people, reach into the deeper story, and all of a sudden you're gonna st- start to discover things that you can build on. So I think tailwind thinking and looking at the halo of other extraordinary successes could provide a start point, a path, uh, the surround vision that we need to see water for the first time, the surround vision to see, you know, buildings, what, just a sense that a building can look out, just feel that for a minute. Just think, oh my God, that's never happened. And, you know, how's this guy gonna do that? Well, I don't know yet, and that's the great part, is we're, we need to think like we want, I, I, feel for, I feel so right to be in the space to say, I don't know yet, but I might know tomorrow. And that's what makes getting up tomorrow so exciting is that I have those opportunities and I want, if if there was one thing I could tell the whole world at one moment, it's to look for those, look, look for waking up for those shared experiences and, and, and make them yours and build on them and be fearless. Wow. Shared experiences. Well, thanks for sharing that experience with us. Um,
0: it's it's always so great to have you around and we're gonna keep having these little conversations every time we get together, which I hope is as often as possible. This is John Picard. Thanks, John. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz Events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. Green Biz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.